Hello and welcome to this BAFTA Crew event, brought to you by BAFTA with BFI Network. We're delighted to have costume designer Michael Wilkinson with us today. He has collaborated on a number of films with David O. Russell and Zack Snyder, as well as working with such singular filmmakers as Darren Aronofsky and Walter Salas. His work has encompassed small and medium-budget films, as well as blockbuster franchises that require the use of innovative, cutting-edge technology. Michael will talk about his work first, and then we'll have a chance to ask questions later. And he opens with his initial collaboration with David O. Russell, American Hustle. So, American Hustle, let's talk about that. Why was I attracted to that film? I, I just love actors, and this was an opportunity to work with four of the most talented actors I've ever worked with. And the great thing about talented actors is that they really lose themselves completely in their roles. They just, they walk into the fitting room, everything disappears, the ego, and they're like this amazing empty canvas to, to create with. Um, and the better the actor, the emptier it is, I find. Uh, and so here I was given the opportunity to create these crazy, complex, wonderful, messed up characters uh, with these super intelligent, talented actors. So the writer-director, David Russell, um, is one of the, I think he maybe um, creates the most interesting characters around these days there, as I was saying before, messed up. That's kind of gold to a costume designer. He, like, he said, there's no cliches in these characters, and so there had to be no cliches in the, in the um, costumes as well. So I really had my, my challenge ahead of me. So let's talk again about David Russell. Um, you know, it was such a fascinating process working with him. He, when I started the film, there was just a couple of descriptions of characters. They were fascinating characters, but they were just literally descriptions, a bit of a beat sheet of what might happen in the film. And over the eight weeks or so of prep that I had before we started shooting, these characters got fleshed out. Uh, I met the actors, I prepared wardrobe for them, I did all the research. And um, so it was this very incredibly satisfying thing because you were really building something from nothing. It's quite unusual. Uh, it was really, what I learned from this, this film was to always stay super flexible uh, and to go with the flow, to stay organic, to um, take other people's ideas on board, to add your own. It was a true, like, magical kind of collaboration. Um, and also, um, what a Davis thing is to kind of get outside your comfort zone. I don't know if he does this consciously or unconsciously, but he likes this kind of energy of like, not having everything planned and controlled. He kind of likes this edge of like, oh, I, I, I don't normally work like this. This is, this is unusual for me. And I feel like he thinks that's how he gets really raw performances from his actors and from all of his creative heads. Um, and so for me, that was a really amazing and different kind of and scary way of working. Um, so let's, I wanna, what I want to talk about tonight is I'm going to concentrate on Amy Adams' character, Sid, so I can sort of show you from sketch to screen how that character evolved. Um, so the first thing I did was heaps and heaps of research. David had all sorts of ideas about, you know, Dan on Postenberg this, and um, Candice Bergen that, and all of these kind of amazing women that he would sort of throw out these comments for. So I took all that information, did my own research, provided my own inspiration, cut these boards together for him, and you know, as a costume designer, you really have to be a detective. And so it wasn't just the art photography, the fashion photography. It was looking at street photography. It was looking at amateur photography, going through people's like photo albums from the day, and really digging deep to get these really unusual, quirky, um, you know, 
details for the costumes. Um, here are my research boards laid out just before uh, a big meeting. And on the other side of the screen is just an example of what happens when you put your research boards on top of your car and then drive away. And then you get to the meeting and you're like, God damn it, I'm sure I put those boards in my trunk, where are they? And then when you go back to the car park at the workroom, that's what you see because trucks have been driving over your research boards in the snow. Uh, and so that's that sad story. Um, but the meeting went okay, I didn't get fired. Um, the, the, then I went on a sort of uh, kind of process of what I call hunting and gathering, and how I, I get the raw material to start working with my actors. Um, we scoured all of the vintage stores of New York and Los Angeles. I contacted all the vintage dealers in between those two um, cities, and they sent boxes of things. I went to the fashion archives of all these amazing fashion houses. Um, this character, as she developed, you know, we wanted to show that she. She would have worn this season's Gucci or that season's Halston, and so I got great access um, to those um, resources. I started putting things on stand, showing them to the actors and the producers. At the same time, I was gathering fabrics and things for things that I knew I had to build from scratch that I would never actually find uh, in the right shape, fit, condition to, to put on camera. Then we had these cool camera tests, something again that I hadn't really done so early in the stage. Um, all of the actors were invited in. I, I got like a rack of play clothes to, to, to try on, to sort to, to do this cool exploration of how the clothes make them feel. Um, the, the amazing thing about American Hustle for a costume designer is it was kind of about how clothes can transform you. Like how what you wear has an impact on how people feel about you. You know, all of these characters, they're all scamming, they're all hustling. And by adopting these clothes, almost like a costume, they can perform these roles. You know, Sydney's character, uh, she, comes, um, she comes to the big smoke, she grew up in a small town, comes to New York, gets a job at Cosmo magazine, and she starts to have fun with clothes, and she's very young, and she kind of is exploring um, the possibilities of there. Um, she, when she falls in love uh, and meets um, Christian Bale's character, she discovers, you know, that better quality clothes can really make you feel fantastic and you start, start sort of, you know, acting like a more sort of, um, you know, upper class person that has these sorts of resources. She gets hers from the clothes that are left over at the dry cleaners. But um, when they come into money, she starts to be able to afford um, better, uh, uh, higher level clothes and you can kind of see that effect it has on her confidence and her, and indeed her hustle. Uh, then I started sketching. Um, as I said, there's things that you just know that you're never going to find that are going to fit your actor the way that you want to in the fabrics and the colors that you need to. So I did this quick sketch, and then I also worked with some fantastic Photoshop artists that created these um, images under my art direction. I really wanted them to have this kind of uh, kind of um, airbrushed feeling, like the '70s pinups, and so we worked hard to get that. Um, going according to all of my um, quick um, uh, pencil sketches that I um, did of all of these costumes. Okay, so this is a bit of a warning. Um, these two slides show you the detail and the depth that we go to with fittings. Uh, this character had about 45 costumes, I think, in the film, going from a small town kid kicking around in the suburbs to, you know, the toaster Studio 54 uh, and the darling of the New York social scene. Um, so, I'm 
working, let's talk about Amy Adams. She is a complete force of nature. She's completely fearless uh, and super smart. And it was just something that I would always treasure, the experience of having fitting with her. And just seeing, it's just like the essence of costume design. It's how do these fabrics make me feel? What's the difference between hiding in like a big furry coat or like wearing next to nothing, like sheer chiffon, strappy dress? Um, you know, how, how sophisticated do I feel in something that's tailored and cut beautifully? How, you know, how louche and sort of um, fun do I feel in something that's just kind of flowy and drapey in a beautiful fabric? So um, this kind of shows the charting of the character from more and more um, sophisticated access to better quality um, clothes and uh, sharing that experience with Amy was super fun. Um, then on set, the, the things stayed pretty organic, surprise, surprise. Um, I always was to have a rack of clothes standing by on set with options. Um, you know, things were kind of charted out on boards before we started shooting, but everything basically was thrown up in the air. Um, David loved sort of being in the, in the moment, seeing how things looked against the set, the lighting, uh, creating amazing new dialogue for the actors just then and there on the spot. And I had to be there at all times to react to this, to, to follow all of his new fantastic ideas, and to come up with my own ideas that would really uh, push things even further. And so here's some stills from the film. The crochet bikini, I searched the world for the right kind of swimwear uh, for Amy and found this amazing creation uh, in Australia, of all places. Um, that's a Diane von Furstenberg original wrap dress from the 70s. Um, that's actually a Bob Mackie design, curiously enough, on the end that I found in a um, rental house. The middle one, um, some pieces from the Gucci archives, plus a sort of um, $10 um, sort of slinky cardigan that I found at a flea market in, in LA. Um, that's a lovely piece of um, vintage St. John uh, at the end. This is an interesting outfit. The blouse is from the Holston archives. I mean, I can't tell you how excited I was to go to the Holston archives in New York. There's a big dark room in the basement of this place, and there was just rails and rails of like, here's the 1972 collection. Here's the resort collection from 75. It was just such a thrill. Uh, and so uh, I found this beautiful blouse. I loved that sort of crazy color of the peachiness of it. I remember Amy saying, this is, I feel so incredible in this, but so terrified because when you're wearing something like this, there's just like nothing between you and the rest of the world. And it kind of fills you with this like electric bus. And so I think you can kind of read that in the scene. Um, it was a vintage belt that I found in the market. And then we made this sort of ultra suede Holston style cheetah skirt for her. Vintage uh, fur coat. Didn't want it's not right. Uh, so we found an old one. We created that um, sheer sparkly dress for her Studio 54 scene. Uh, this is a beautiful, this is actually contemporary Holston. Holston is redoing their line. And I liked this piece because the, the leather coat dress, because of course it has an incredible neckline and had that just super sexy, is it tailored, is it drapey, fitted her like a glove. I knew it was going to find a place in the film. Okay, and sometimes when you go through all of this together with an actor, you the good, the bad, and the ugly, you're in the trenches with them, there's this incredible bond that happens that is kind of unlike anything 
else. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. It's kind of a chemistry thing. Um, but you know, there's a sort of sense of trust and honesty. I don't see Amy every day, but when I do, it's kind of like this knowing thing of like, yeah, we experienced that together. <laughs> So now I want to talk about Tron Legacy. You can get two more extremely different projects. Um, this one I was super attracted to because I love the idea of taking a beloved franchise or a product. Uh, the 1983 film was amazing and I was 13 at the time, which just kind of blew me away. So here I was given, given an opportunity to, to update that for a modern audience and try and make it relevant. Um, but also I'm crazy about costume um, innovations. Um, and using new materials and new costume making techniques to um, totally go where no other costume design has gone before. Um, you know, ever since I saw Cecil Beaton's painted costumes from the 1940s or Barbarella's acrylic, you know, costume, her clear plastic um, battle gear from, from Barbarella, from uh, Jane Fonda, even like Darth Vader's, crazy vacuum form. Um, all of these are innovations that actually designers have done over the years, and so I kind of wanted to be a part of that story. Um, one of the, this is the director, um, Joe Kaczynski, a lovely chap. Couldn't be a more different personality type than David Russell. I uh, was very interested in precision, and everything was art-directed like months before. There was six months of pre-production developing the look and the, the technologies for, for Tron. Um, so this was an example, a much bigger budget than American Hustle. This is a good example of um, the collaborative nature of what I do because obviously one person cannot go and create all of this. On this film, I worked with really interesting people I've never worked with before. We were using skills that you know regular costumers don't necessarily have, so I had to seek out new people to work with, um, to find new materials, work in new materials, uh, and so and there's a whole lot of, of course, digital technology used all, all the way along. So it was a really great sort of refreshing um, moment for me. Uh, one of the things I had to do was to sort of refer to the original film, um, but push it in a whole new direction. I actually love the costumes from the, the old film. This is 1983. Um, and so some of the language of that, you can probably see there's a kind of connection to what, um, what we were doing. Um, but you know, for today's audience, we're very demanding, we're very sophisticated, we think we've seen everything, there's virtual reality, we all know so much about technology, you know, the internet, by the way, has been invented since this film came out, um, and so there's, there was a real sort of demand to sort of come up with something, you know, cool that hadn't been seen before, and also to make it just damn fun and, you know, shamelessly entertaining, uh, so that was my brief. Um, I also want to talk about this concept of what, like, what I call world building. You know, when you're designing a fantasy film and creating a world that really hasn't been seen before, you work with the production designer, the director, all of the creatives to sort of to create a world from the ground up. And that includes, for, for costume design, you kind of have to, we sort of worked out a whole structure of society, you know. We worked out the different classes, the rules, the tribes that would make up this kind of society. So it felt real, like a functioning real thing. So here you can see, this is kind of like the military class, um, generals, soldiers, these mysterious kind of creatures that sort of facilitate that transformation from the real world to the digital world. This is kind of the mystic philosopher sector of society, the thinkers. Um, we came up with 
dozens of these designs. So a lot of the extras were, you know, they were all one-off designs. Um, these were the sort of the, what we call the aesthetes on one side here, the sort of artist creative types, uh, and then the sort of more worker drone people on the other side. So yeah, there was lots of, of concepting, imagineering going on. Um, all of those previous um, designs were done in Photoshop, and then for the very sophisticated hero costumes, we realized we had to sort of explore new technologies and really do something precise. So I don't want to go too far into the wormhole here because it gets very techy very quickly. Um, so tell me if it's getting boring. But um, the, these were drawn in a 3D drawing application. So it's called ZBrush or ZBrush. Um, and so what you do is you draw and you sculpt in 3D. You can turn things around, you can zoom in, you can create shapes, lock them onto the, pat onto the, the mannequin. And so it's this fascinating thing. Then you take these designs and you put it into another application called Lightbox. And then you can create textures. Uh, you can um, create the lighting that you want in the illustration. Um, you can apply different materials, glass, you know, um, acrylic. Uh, you can scan in materials that you like and then it sucks it onto the illustration. So it's really, it's mind-blowing stuff. So that's what we did for this main character here. Um, and then we decided, you know what, let's try and make these, unlike most CG, unlike, when, when you see very CG films, have you noticed that a lot of the characters seem very lightweight and tinny, and they kind of don't really feel real? We really wanted to avoid that. We wanted them to be actors on set, in costume, touching the ground, having you know, gravi gravitational force, um, and also having like a little bit of the textures, the wrinkles, the to just make them a lot more real. So they, the, the director was like, you know what, these characters, these, these costumes have to be as camera ready as, pos as possible. I don't want to tweak them very much in post-production. And that includes the lighting. And so suddenly we had to create these costumes that actually had, that could light up for real. Um, and still the actors had to be able to do all of these incredible feats of athleticism and for all of the stunts and the fighting. Uh, the cool sequences. So that was a, a huge um, challenge to myself and my team. So, okay, I'm gonna jump through this. We drew it in the computer. We printed out like a 12 inch model of what the costume was going to be like just to have something in our hands and to get out of the computer and into the real world. Um, we scanned that actor, which is a bizarre thing where an actor stands there and a laser passes over them. It's a way of um, creating a life-size mannequin is exactly like the, the, the um, actor, so you can make everything fit really well. Uh, but the catch was, when you make things in these materials, they have to be kind of slightly smaller than you want them to be in order to like stretch with the body, if you know what I mean. Like if you're wearing a leotard, imagine a leotard when it's off the body, it's just like this kind of shrinky thing, right? So when it's stretched and you wear it out, it, it, it takes your shape. So similarly, we had to shave down all these mannequins so they were like a quarter of an inch smaller than all of that actor, stretch them out in certain types, really tweak them, and so that once we built the costume on top of them, and then they put it on, it would like suck back to them and feel like it fit them beautifully. Um, so then we milled um, these designs out of really soft, crumbly foam. They weren't grown. You know how you can sometimes grow things in a, in a 3D printer? This was literally like a big block of foam and a laser um, like carver slices through it and cuts away all of the block until you're left with this. 
Um, then you make um, molds of that. Then you make your hard parts, and with the hard parts you go in and you do all the body shopping. So it looks perfect and shiny, like this image here. Um, then you get to, guess what? You may have to know about circuitry. I didn't know anything about electricity or lights. Uh, and so my hearty team, um, we did a huge like, um, R&D research and development to light up materials. The most obvious choice was electroluminescent tape, which is that stuff that you see on signs and things that lights up. But guess what? That doesn't stretch, and costumes have to stretch. Uh, so we found this thing called elastolite. It's like these little particles that are sandwiched between two very like, uh, thin layers of plastic, almost like a consistency of a band-aid. So it actually kind of stretches. And then you put an electrical charge into that, and the particles light up. You need batteries, you need wiring. It's, it's a whole thing. Uh, so this is um, us laying, oh, by the way, that was a circuitry plan, like working out what shapes had to be and where all the co connectors had to be. Um, this was laying the circuitry into the costumes. This is building the costume. This is a fitting. Uh, this was one of our first fittings with, um, with Garrett. Um, and this is where we learned about what happens when you make things that are too small, too big, and they're rubber. Oh, and by the way, the foam latex, which is the sort of grayish material there, it shrinks, but in an unpredictable way. Sometimes it's 3%, sometimes it's 13%. Um, and so that was a real nightmare for us to sort of deal with all of that. Then we had a camera test. We turned on the lights. They actually worked. We didn't kill anyone with an electric charge. That was great. Um, then, okay, well, then we started filming. So these are shots, shots from uh, onset. Um, these are the finished uh, product, the, the costume. This is kind of to show you, have you heard about motion capture suits? That's when, at certain moments, you, it does need to be a digitally created costume. Uh, for example, when they're on their, um, on their vehicles, they have to kind of plug and connect into the vehicle so they look like they're part of it. And so they wear a motion capture suit, and all those dots tracked by the computer, the computer has a wire model or a scan of the costume and they lock them together and so it looks like they're actually wearing the costume. Um, here are more stills from Tron. I told you it was really techy and geeky so hopefully I chose you a whole different side of <coughs> costume design. Okay, and now for a completely other <laughs> different type of costume design. This is the current war. It hasn't come out yet. It's set in, um, it's the story of Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse, Nikola Tesla, sort of fight to get um, electricity into all of our houses in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and so why did I want to do this project? Um, I, I'm, I'm crazy about period films, um, but I'm also super interested in, you know, how costume design is a mirror of our society. So how we interpret a period, in any given period, kind of is a reflection of ourselves. You just have to think of the cool 60s designs that were done for Cleopatra in the 60s when it was supposed to be ancient Greece, but it kind of looked like an amazing catwalk from the, the 1960s. Um, you can think of like Marie Antoinette and uh, Catherine the Great, those films that were made with Garbo in the 30s, and how they have this beautiful sort of um, Art Deco kind of feel, even though they're supposed to be set in other uh, periods. Um, Dr. Zhivago, 1960s again, but, uh, you can kind of feel the 1960s vibe, even though it's supposed to be World War I. So I wanted to sort of be part of this conversation and think, what would Michael Wilkinson do to interpret 1880s uh, and 1890s? 
Um, so that was when I met this guy. Um, this is Alfonso, the director. And fortunately, he really, we really clicked. He had this great sort of sense of like, history is not in black and white. I need these characters to be full-blooded. Um, these characters are all in their 30s. They, they need to be like hot-headed and passionate. Um, he showed me like reference images of David Bowie and um, Bob Dylan uh, and early color photography from America. And all these kind of really interesting things that when you mix them with the world of the 1880s and 1890s, kind of gave it a real, a real sort of um, life and a real sense of passion. So what I'm going to concentrate on today is the character of Nikola Tesla. Clearly, he's the most exciting character for a costume designer. He's such a fascinating guy. He was a complete, um, he's like a super hypersensitive person. Not, I mean, not only was he, you know, an amazing electrical pioneer, and he basically invented the internet uh, and wireless technology and all these super cool things, um, but he had this very, very particular sense of style and aesthetics. Um, he couldn't, for example, he couldn't be near women that wore pearls. That was just unbearable for him. Uh, he had a selection of, I think, 48 gloves in all colors from like um, mint green through to mulberry through to kind of lilac and lavender that he would coordinate uh, according to what um, accessories he was wearing. Um, you know, he, he wore three-piece suits to work every day. Um, he was a very dapper um, gentleman. And so to delve into all of that research and think about well, how I wanted to interpret that and how I wanted to tell that story with the costumes was lots of fun. Um, and so here's some of my inspiration, not only looking at chaps from, from the period, um, but also looking at sort of other interpretations of dandyism, sensitivity, sensitivity to colors, interesting combinations of colors, fabrics, playing with silhouette. Um, then I started to find fabrics of my own, put colors together, um, working with incredible production designer, Jan Rolfs, he's amazing. He did um, all of Peter Green and my films, uh, so he was a wonderful collaborator. We put all our colors together. Um, then I started creating reference boards, being specific, breaking down the script, looking at the different changes that we had to um, wear during the film. Uh, I did some illustrations. Um, flew over to Las Vegas, which is where Mr. Nicholas Holt happened to be hiking with his brother-in-law at the time. Um, and I took with me like a suitcase full of rental clothes. Uh, he'd given me his sizes, so I wanted to just sort of play around, get an idea of some silhouettes, and I'd go back to London, work with my tailor, make things from scratch for him. Um, but I wanted to show you this photo at the end, because this is what happens when you give a costume designer your sizes, but they're completely incorrect. Uh, I made some these are trousers for him that clearly didn't fit, and I was like, turn around, I'm going to take a photo of this, and I'm going to show it to everyone. <laughs> Um, this is the second fitting we had. So here's some things that I made, for, oh, I didn't, my fabulous Budapest tailor made from scratch uh, for him based on sort of shapes and things that we'd found in rental houses and historical collections. Um, so we went bold with the colors. We tried interesting combinations of colors. And the cut was always fastidious. And the, the jackets were always to be buttoned up. Um, interesting neckwear, beautiful combinations of, of textures and, and, and patterns and colors. Nicholas was an interesting actor too. He was, it wasn't like Amy where it was kind of like, let's talk about it all, I'm gonna try on a million things, let's explore this together. He was kind of basically like, put it on me. And wow, this feels crazy, and let me think about that. I'm gonna go off and do some research now. So it was kind of an interesting, he's a much more intuitive person. He puts the clothes on and then he 
he kind of uh, that informs his, his performance, and he's very he's less of a sort of a, uh, you know preparational kind of uh, actor and more of a like in the moment actor. It's so interesting as costume designers just to experience the whole diverse spectrum of actors and how they prepare for a role. Okay, so here's some um, images of him on set. This is a beautiful um, jacket that I have made. I love this huge window pane, bold design. I love him wearing this pale suit underneath it. We have this um, custom made hat. Uh, we thought since he was so sensitive to light, these, um, these um, coloured glasses would be a lovely detail. Here he is playing billiards. He was a mad billiard fan um, with his beautiful um, gold velvet waistcoat. Um, then he, when he comes into a little bit of money, spoiler alert, in the film, um, he gets to sort of upgrade his look a little bit and so he goes for these beautiful um, custom-made um, frock suits. Uh, always interesting details. I found this beautiful window pane, um, sort of silk linen fabric. Uh, in when I was in Budapest with my tailor in this crazy flea market on a Saturday morning, it was like a never roll, and I thought I know exactly what to do with this fabric. Um, then the, the beautiful blue cashmere. If you could feel this coat, you would just die of pleasure. And I thought that was a lovely thing, since he was so sensitive to fabrics that would kind of really help his performance and feel sort of um, nicely nurtured by this um, frock coat. Here he is, this is kind of a reproduction of the famous moment where he's using the Tesla coil at the, um, the uh, Chicago Welfare in 1895. Uh, in fact, he's just holding like a um, fluorescent tube, but with a miracle of post-production, it's gonna look like a bolt of electricity, or something super exciting. But this is a waistcoat I made from, out of this beautiful striped gold silk. Um, so, I can't really show you much more of, of current wall because it's not out yet, and, uh, but this is, gives you a little bit of a scale of all of these, these costumes we all made from scratch. There's a wonderful range of characters from Westinghouse, played by Michael Shannon, who's incredibly beautifully dressed. He's an extremely wealthy Chicago businessman. His wife, um, played by the amazing Catherine Waterston, I got to design and create um, 14 amazing dresses for her. Um, she was an extremely wealthy, well-dressed lady. Um, also, Edison on the right in his bold, sort of Bob Dylan-esque um, checked suit. You might see the reference there. His wife is next to um, him, um, and she's a, more of a, I guess, a, a upper-middle-class sort of character. Um, didn't have necessarily the resources of the, the um, Westinghouse's wife. So, stand by. Current War is going to come out next year, and hopefully you'll love it. Justice League. Okay, here we are. Um, so, it's so interesting. My background is actually, before I decided doing films, I um, trained in opera and ballet and dance and live theatre. Um, I got the bug when I was like a, a teenager. I worked as a dresser um, at the Sydney Opera House. And so I was kind of around these opera creatures. And people are like, what's this kid from like Sydney, Australia? How did he get to design like these mega multi-billion dollar um, superhero films. I'm like, it's all about opera. You know, these characters that like, they are larger than life, they stand for these things, you know, they're symbols, they're icons, they're kind of like the gods of Valhalla in, in a Wagner opera or something like that. So I think my early training of like thinking big, going for iconography, um, symbolism, really looking into the meaning of characters and what they stand for, um, kind of helped me 
get into, into the, um, the superhero train. Um, these films have a massive budget. I worked for, on the uh, Justice League for I think 14 months of my life. Uh, and so you have a huge team. It's like an amazing thing to go through because you just can go into so much detail about all of these characters. Um, there were 3,000 extras that I had to dress. Um, there were just, I had a team of up to 150 people at one stage. Um, so it was amazing. One of the things that I like the most about them, though, these superhero films, is designing the clothes for the alter egos, like the, the Bruce Waynes and the Clark Kents and the Diana Princes, like the, and finding clever little links between the superhero costume and what I call like the civilian costume, so that there's maybe some subliminal connection with the colors, the textures, the details, um, so it kind of, the, 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 the audience sort of finds these interesting connections. So that's just one thing that I have fun with. Okay, so this guy is amazing. He's Zack Snyder. I've done six films with him. Um, he's the guy that kind of really took a chance with me when I was uh, early on in my career and really helped get things started. Uh, we started off with 300. Uh, then we did Watchmen, Sucker Punch, uh, Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, and now Justice League. So got a lot of history together. You can imagine by now our relationship is very finishing each other's sentences and thoughts. Um, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of discussion and dialogue about um, about things. Having said that, each time we work together, we want to push things to another level. So we're not resting on laurels. We are kind of thinking how we can make things even more interesting, try stuff we've never done before. Um, but this man is like one of the most warm, trusting, um, wonderful uh, uh, creatures on the, on the planet. So I feel very fortunate to have come into his um, orbit. He, uh, these are some quick sketches I did um, very on, early on in the Justice League um, schedule. And it's a, it's a hell of a journey to go from that to that, <laughs> from sketch to screen. Um, but what I want to do today is concentrate on one, the Wonder Woman costume, and talk to you about that, that process. So we start off with our research. Um, and I cast the net super wide with my research. I'm looking at fashion, I'm looking at video games, I'm looking at history, I'm looking at the history of film costumes, uh, I'm looking at cool textures and materials. So I slap it all up on the wall, I show it to Zach, we start talking, um, and then we start drawing. Um, I work with an amazing um, team of uh, illustrators that I art direct again, all of the details of the costumes. They work from my, my um, pencil sketches. And, and develop up of these amazing drawings that really help pitch a movie to a studio and uh, get people excited. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about, it's not just Wonder Woman, right? In this film, there's, you see the whole Amazon culture. So it gets another kind of example of world building. You have to see the island that she comes from. You have to see how it works. How the details of her costume are translated to other um, people from where she comes from. So having designed the Wonder Woman suit um, in, for Batman vs Superman, I then um, worked together with Lindy Hemming who did the Wonder Woman film. We worked together for two weeks, again, like um, throwing all the ideas up on the wall, working together to develop a whole culture of Amazons, different classes, warriors, people from the town, people from the palace, um, so that we, there would be a co coherent sort of world between her film and my film. Um, all sort of based on the Wonder Woman costume that I had designed for the previous film. So here you can see, in our film, Justice League, we flash way back thousands of years to see a, a 
primitive version of the Amazon culture. This Zach wanted something much more primal, tribal, rough. Um, that was thousands of years ago. Then there's the Wonder Woman film, which is in uh, 1915, uh, World War I. Uh, and then Justice League, most of the Amazons appear present day. So that's what you see on the other side there. You can see how the costumes have evolved. We want to sort of help the audience tell the story of the passing of time uh, and how the details of the costumes have developed. That's what you can see, by the way, on this um, display here. You can see a, a sort of primitive flashback costume. You can see the hero Wonder Woman costume. And then you can see, this is Hippolyta's costume, the queen of um, Themyscira. Uh, she has the more contemporary Amazon look. Um, here's an example of what we um, designed for um, other soldiers and um, citizens of Themyscira, the magical island of Wonder Woman. I want to talk to you about branding. That's something that also kind of comes into my world, believe it or not. With the, the motive that I designed for the front of um, the uh, Wonder Woman costume is going to be incredibly important. Uh, we did lots of research into different shapes. That's my kind of original sketch you can see up in the corner there. Lots of exploration. We came up with a look for the costume, but then I also had to sort of do this more rectilinear version of it to brand the film that was um, eventually used as Wonder Woman's symbol uh, and on the posters for the film. Then we did the same old Tron sort of drawing things in the computer. We wanted this costume to be the audience to think, how the hell was this created? It's from a whole other culture. It's, uh, the interesting thing about this one, which is a really fun thing, was to use all new, brand new technology but create this kind of ancient feeling costume. We wanted it to feel like it'd been around for thousands of years. It has sustained lots of scratches and um, you know, damage from thousands of years of battle. So I love this idea of new and old together. So once we'd drawn it up, um, we had camera tests. Um, we didn't know who uh, Wonder Woman was going to be. Uh, we had four lovely actresses that came in one day. None of them knew each other was there, so they had to like not never meet each other. Uh, they did this kind of chemistry read with um, Ben Affleck. We got them into sort of a the silhouette of a Wonder Woman style costume. By the way, none of these actresses even knew what role they were. Uh, uh, auditioning for. I'm pretty sure that once they saw Ben Affleck and looked down and saw you know, the knee boots and the, uh, the Wonder Woman silhouette of the costume, they probably had a pretty good idea. Um, but uh, while all of that was being worked out by the studio, who was going to be Wonder Woman, um, we started building a costume for her on a sort of generic Wonder Woman-shaped body. Um, I wanted to show you this. This is kind of fun. So before we had an actor, we had a body double. Um, and we, this shows you the various fitting one, two, and three of this is how the genesis of the Wonder Woman suit. So the first um, fitting you can see establishing a silhouette, getting the underpinnings right, getting that sort of iconic, amazing hourglass shape, playing around with scale and proportion of the details. Then we drew it in the computer and we uh, outputted this black version. That's what the material looks like before you paint it. Um, it had to be very flexible, it had to, but at the same time it had to look like metal, uh, ancient metal like that. And so we're beginning to play with um, paint finishes and things in that third photo. Then we got our cast, the magnificent Gal Gadot, uh, fell from heaven. And this is uh, one of her first fittings where you can see um, we're experimenting now with color and the textures and proportions that work with her particular um, physique. 
Um, I created this fantastic uh, sort of eagle feather cape for her. Um, and then you can see um, adjusting details and things uh, in that final image. And that's how she looks. That's how the, the, the costume looks uh, on the big screen. So uh, a wonderful journey to take with an amazing actor. Um, oh, and by the way, this is also part of my life. <laughs> when you design superhero films, you have to go to Comic-Con. I don't know if you've heard of this concept, uh, but uh, there's one in San Diego, there's one in Brazil, they're all over the world, and you hang out with all the fans, and you, you tell them how excited um, you are about the superhero universe, um, little sneak peeks into secrets of behind the scenes. It's really fun. Whoever thought that I would be doing that, but uh, there you go, it was incredible. Um, okay, I was telling you about the civilian wear. That's designing all of these outfits for Gal for her moments when she's not Wonder Woman, but she's Diana Prince was so much fun. Um, become uh, creating like a really bespoke look for her. She plays a very sophisticated woman, unlike any of the other characters. She's from Europe, so she's allowed to be a little bit more sophisticated and cosmopolitan in her clothes than, um, than the Americans. Captain might have to say that. Um, so we had fun with like great um, labels for her. Um, I made lots of things from scratch for her as well, um, uh, including these designs here. This was um, actually from Batman vs Superman. She had to have like a, a showstopper dress for her first appearance when Bruce um, Wayne meets her. So I designed this backless um, dress. I always like putting like little Grecian elements in, in there. So this is the evening where she wears um, for the big opera gala in um, Batman vs Superman. So you can see a few modern takes on uh, Grecian detailing uh, with that design. Okay, what am I doing now? I'm doing Aladdin with Disney and Mr. Guy Ritchie. Um, it's amazing. Uh, it's my first uh, film musical that I've done. Um, I was so intrigued at what this project was going to be. You have Guy Ritchie who does all these like geezer films that are like super entertaining and like from the street and raw and sort of cheeky and subversive. Uh, and then you have uh, Disney that does all these family friendly, colorful, all singing, all dancing uh, musicals. Uh, so um, I was intrigued by that concept. I um, signed on straight away. Um, and uh, in a year or so, you're going to see this hit the big screen. Um, it was a great opportunity to reinterpret these kind of iconic cartoon characters um, for these amazing, amazing, talented actors. I traveled the world. It was like, it was the dream job. I went from India to Morocco, sourcing amazing fabrics to get this sort of specific world. Again, it's, it's a fantasy. It's set sort of in the Middle East, but we have the liberty of just taking the most interesting elements from all of these world cultures and creating our own world, world building again. Um, we made hundreds of costumes from scratch. We're still filming, and I'm super excited about it. Um, so um, you can tell that costume design really is a lifelong journey for me. Of, um, constant discovery and exploration. Um, it's been a real pleasure sharing some of my experiences with you tonight. And um, let's, uh, I'm going to talk with Ian. We're going to have some questions from you guys in a little bit, but uh, let's get going. You're the guest who's not meant to do the work. <laughs> I like to keep it real. Okay, we've got about 
20 minutes, I think, for uh, Michael and myself. Um, but if you have an urgent question while we're chatting that's relevant to what we're talking about, um, please do put your hand up. Um, it, it's interesting listening to you right at the beginning talk about what you thought your roles were. Um, because the one thing that has become clear over the course of the last hour is that you're now also a special effects whiz, which going back 15 years, talking with other costume designers working in the 90s, 80s, 70s, and before that, that's not a role that they would have necessarily said that they'd taken on. But this is something that's so integral to what you do now. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I think the challenge is to keep what we all love about costumes, you know, colors and fabrics and textures, and at the same time use technology to create images that really haven't been seen before, try and like push the envelope, but never lose you know, the silhouettes and the colors and, and what we love about characters and what makes them resonate with us as people, uh, flawed people, complex people, and at the same time work with these digital technologies. Uh, it's, it's just a fascinating time to be in the filmmaking industry, I think. Um, looking specifically at the, the superhero films um, that you've been involved with, because I, I think the first moment that I became aware of you as a costume designer was this really fantastic uh, film called Sky High. Um, and it, 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 in some ways, it, it harks back to an earlier view of the superhero, uh, superhero movie. It's, it's, it's very light in tone, it's fun, it's jocular. Um, but what's really interesting, I feel, with the films that you've worked on, um, even compared to other recent superhero films, is the importance of the role of the costume designer. It's increased, it's no longer just about the two leads, the, you know, the villain and the hero, it is about the way everyone else looks. Do you feel there's been sort of a, a shift since you started working with Zacon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when, it's funny you should mention Sky High, because you're right, that was kind of my first superhero film. It was the film that brought me actually to Los Angeles before that I'd been living in um, New York and doing kind of much smaller uh, non-studio independent films. Um, and I think when you think about the role of a costume designer today, there's so much branding and merchandising, social media, they want little grabs of content on their websites, costumes, behind the scene costumes, they want special edition of the costumes to be able to sell to collectors. Being a costume designer is really exciting, it's far reaching, it's like stuff that you never learn at college when you're, when you're, when you're you know, learning about being a costume designer. There's so many different things involved in it, and personally, I really love the dialogue with, um, you know, with your audience. But I don't think previously costume designers really had much of a back and forth with costume with with their audiences. But now, with social media, with being more of a, a public person, with having opportunities to express um, how the costumes came about, it's it's a really nice um, opportunity for for dialogue. And how much of a challenge has it been for you? You, you mentioned working with um, Lindy on um, the Wonder Woman, uh, Woman costume. And in a way, there's another baton that's being passed because Lindy was responsible for the Batman costumes for Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. So, so this other thing is kind of passed across to you. But what I found fascinating with the DC universe, and obviously it's the same with the Marvel universe, is that it's no longer a case that you're designing for one film. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned brands. Yeah. But how much expectation is placed on you 
as the head of costume design to, to be responsible for creating something that will have longevity over many films, over the course of even perhaps decades? I think it's kind of, it's implicit and it's kind of understood. I don't think I ever um, worry too much about it. It's, it's kind of, as I say, another spectrum of my work which kind of helps things never be boring. And uh, uh, I, I think, like for example, with this Aladdin film, I'd done my designs and then I did a Skype chat with the um, with 18 people in Burbank, California, who were the, the, the marketing, the publicity people, the people who were taking my designs and making them into, um, you know, lampshades and key rings and baseball caps and um, Halloween costumes and all that sort of thing. And it was really fascinating to sort of be having this dialogue with them, seeing what they were excited by. I don't necessarily design with that in mind. I design for the script, I design for my characters, I design for storytelling, but it's definitely interesting having that in the back of my mind. So for Jas Princess Jasmine's costumes for Aladdin, there's nine of them, they're all bold colors. Immediately everyone's like, fantastic, nine dolls, that's so cool. Uh, so <laughs> it's just interesting, the kind of chicken and the egg um, nature of this. It's, it's in the back of my mind, but I don't think it's it's necessarily the, the foremost informant of my design process. And you, you touched on the fact that um, American Hustle has a much smaller budget than, than something like Film Legacy. Um, how much of a challenge has it become to actually work out a budget for the larger films? And, and how do you, you start off going about working that out? Um, I work with, um, so in a costume department, there's a costume designer. And then the sort of second in charge is a, the costume supervisor. And they have special skills, which is like to break down a script, put together an idea of what crew would need to be um, gathered to, to carry out the designs, um, what things might cost. Then I work with, with that costume supervisor. I put my input of like, you know what, I don't think we can really justify that much for that costume or, oh, you know, I might have might not be in the drawing, but there's an extra cape that goes with that costume. And so it's kind of this to and fro. We work out the budget. Usually they've given you a number already. And so it's an interesting process. You kind of think, well, we can say it's going to cost, you know, X million dollars, but they want it to be half X. Um, and so it's this little dance that you do. You go back, you present the budget, uh, you come back, you revise, you listen to what the producers say, um, you work with them, you fight for what you think is important, uh, and you um, scale back on the things that you can be clever and do in a lateral, um, um, creative way, uh, a cheaper way. So it's, it's, it's definitely part of my, my job, but I tell you, when you find a fantastic costume supervisor that can do a good job of that, it's just such a relief and a huge weight of a costume designer's shoulders. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious with the budget because it was interesting listening to you talk about the current war and, and defining the look of Nikolai Tesla. Um, what's amazing, and, the, and other costume designers will talk about research and talk about drawing, but the level of, of research you do in terms of creating costumes to try and find that look, I just wonder, do you see this as, this is an investment that you need to do rather than just drawing the thing you need to create them and not all the things, not all the um, costumes that you create may eventually be used. And, and how you find that balance of how far you go down that road with that before you actually 
find the things that you want to use. Yeah, that's, it's, it's different on different projects. Um, when you have more resources, of course, you can create a bigger closet. You can be more exploratory in like having, you know, two racks of costumes in the fitting as opposed to like five things that you preciously um, allocated budget for to, to make. Um, I, I do like casting the net really wide because I feel like um, from that, I'm really open to my collaborators' opinions. Uh, I know a costume designer that like will make a costume for an actor, have it on the rail, and it's like, this is what you're wearing in the scene. Uh, and that's a, that's a certain way of working. I love to actually um, have the actor walk into the room, be surprised by, I never thought, you know, this stretchy sweatsuit was the right thing for my character, but I'm glad it's on the rail because I've been thinking about, you know, a three-piece linen suit. But I, I love that element of surprise and discovery. Um, so yeah, I do all of my research. I like to do what I call like, um, like um, psychological research. So for example, with Tesla, it's not just like, what did this person wear? But it's like, what do we want to say with this character? What does he stand for in the film? How does it support the themes of, of the director uh, and you know, what we want to say? And what colors, silhouettes, details are suggested by that that will help help tell the story. And it's interesting when that, that works incredibly well because you, I cast my mind back to a film like 300, your first collaboration with Zach, and um, the thing that stays with me are the costumes. And I know the, the costumes were actually quite skimpy, um, but it, the capes, and this is the thing that you, you realize that how much character is defined by the costumes that these characters wear. But I was also thinking about four things when, when you were talking. Form, function, character, but also mood. That it, these costumes do help to create a mood. And I'm curious about the relationship that you have, not just with the director in this, but with the cinematographer. Yeah, I haven't spoken about that very much. It's one of my favorite things about being a costume designer, is this collaboration with the production designer and the cinematographer. When the chemistry is there and you're like, you know, you're like this fantastic soulful connection of, of creative forces, it's so powerful, it's so satisfying to walk into a, you know, a production designer's office and see all of their research and you've just been like filling your head with all of your research. It can just blow your mind, things that you've never even thought about before. Uh, equally, cinematographers, you know, the way they bring your work to, to life, the difference between lining a costume one way uh, or another way. Um, it's, it's just so interesting and it, and it really makes it an art form. You know, cinema is an art form. And what, what costume designers and production designers and cinematographers do, where we're creating images and we're using colors, textures, um, silhouette, the same way a painter would be applying um, you know, colors and, and, uh, and shapes to a canvas. Um, and we're, that's what makes it just so um, endlessly rewarding for me. And I was thinking when you were talking about American Hustle, of another film that you've worked on, and you've mentioned a number of directors, um, Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu, you worked with him on Babel. Because again, this is, a, this is another film that does a very fascinating thing, that like American um, Hustle, characters are defined by what they wear. Mm. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit, not just about that, but also geography and how that impacted on that film. Hopefully a lot of you will have seen it. 
Yeah, I love, I'm so proud of Babel. I, I love that film. Um, that was a pretty fascinating experience, similar to a David O. Russell in the fact that it was very um, fluid and things were like um, developed and created on the day. And um, it was all about that sort of raw being in the moment. You talk of geography, it's interesting. It was shot uh, all around the world. Um, the, the part that I was the most involved in was the Moroccan section. And I remember this amazing kind of moment that I'll always remember uh, is when we were, we were trying to get really super authentic looking Moroccan clothes for our background artists. And what, what we decided to do was we were working in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. We went to Casablanca, the big town, and bought all of these new clothes from the, um, the markets there, put them in the middle of the square in this tiny village in the middle of nowhere, called out all of the villages and said, look, we're here, we've bought all these um, new clothes. If you're interested in some sort of exchange thing, um, let's, let's do some business here. Um, so we got these divine like pieces of, of, of this amazing closet of clothes um, that were, had all of the right beautiful textures, they were stripped of colors, they were worn, they had all these wonderful details that uh, it would take you know, a textile artist years to re reproduce. Um, and the village got um, some new clothes. Hopefully they feel like they got a, you know, a good bargain out of it, but it really helps, I think, make those costumes feel authentic. Um, we do have a Rogan mic. If someone does have a question, please put your hand up. Okay, I'll, I'll stay me for the moment. Um, I want to go back to... Oh, yes, we do, over there. And then we'll come over this side. Hi. Um, I was interested in when you were talking about Tron, you mentioned using 3D body scanning. Um, and I just wanted to ask a few questions about that, if I could. So, uh, I know a little bit about it. I think you get in the machine, it takes like 30 seconds, right? Sorry, say that one more time. I think you get in the machine, right, it takes 30 seconds to be scanned. Does it, or is it? Sorry, can you just say that? To scan an actor. Uh, yeah, when the, with the 3D body scanning, when you have the, all of the information, I can tell from the costumes that there's amounts of padding and things that must have been used. So I'd be interested to know how you figured out what to do with the information once you had it that was fed into something to be able to make the costumes. Right, that's, that's a great question. Because what we found out very quickly was the idealized forms that we were drawing in the computer that was so perfect and symmetrical, they were, they were really nice, but they really had nothing to do with a real human being. It's amazing how non-symmetrical even these glorious creatures we call actors are. Um, and so Garrett's, like one of his shoulders was so much lower than the other. Um, his waist was so much longer than the perfect you know, mannequin that we'd built in the computer. So um, there was a huge, it was much harder than we thought it was going to be. You know, there was a huge process of, okay, great, we've made these incredibly complicated costume parts. They kind of work, uh, but they have to be phenomenal. So the, what we ended up actually doing, um, again, not many people know this, is that we did quite a lot of clay sculpting as well. We did a lot of digital sculpting in the computer, but sometimes good old-fashioned techniques like clay sculpting on a mannequin, when you can actually really see it in front of you, you can turn around. Nothing kind of, to my, to my experience, nothing can really replace that. And so. The finished costume is quite a complex combination of things that are just milled out from a 3D printer. Um, 
you know, there's a whole layer of like neoprene and comfort wear underneath, um, building up of layers, thinking about movement, uh, and then sort of reproportioning, if you will, um, the body to kind of give this very idealized um, finished product. It was, it was actually probably one of the most complicated costumes I've ever done, I think. You, um, again, we've heard you talk about um, technology, and you seem to be someone who embraces innovation, technological innovation uh, within the industry. Do you feel that that enthusiasm is widespread? Or do you feel there's a sense that this, this technology that's moving in, perhaps some people feel it's taking away from what they might perceive to be the craft? I think there's a, with anything new, there's a certain nervousness or like un uncertainty. Um, I think, you know, gone are the days that like, oh gosh, they won't need costume designers in the future because it'll all be done in the computer. I think we've all realized that, you know, what makes characters on the screen really reverberate with audiences and characters that you can really connect with, there just needs to be a little bit of humanity in front of the camera. Uh, and that sort of often extends to costumes. Remember the Green Lantern? That's probably quite a good example. That costume was entirely digital and there was lots of um, backlash about it didn't feel real, I couldn't relate to it, I hated it. Um, so we always try and make things superheroes, costumes, that are camera-ready. Uh, you know, obviously costumes like Cyborg, uh, there was a mostly um, CG work, but even like the starting point of that costume was made, where the costume touches the human, was made and filmed in camera. And we found that that just kind of makes the connection between real and, and virtual a little bit more convincing. I also did material studies of the cyborg costume, so I, I created parts of him um, and explored paint finishes and different sort of um, materials to sort of give to the digital artist to sort of make sure it was, even though it was supposed to be from an alien culture, you wanted to be able to somehow connect with this figure on, on screen. Yes. Hi Michael, thanks for your time this evening. My question is, a lot of what you do uh, spills over into branding. Uh, does this change how you negotiate your contracts? All these great questions. <laughs> um, it's so interesting, you know, it's been a big issue over the years. In theatre, um, uh, costume designers get royalties, so, um, you, know, the, the, you know, you might design The Lion King and it's in theatres for 25 years, and each year you get a nice little check from your amazing designs that you did 25 years ago. There's nothing really like that uh, in films. Uh, it's something that the Costume Design Guild Union is trying to um, renegotiate and open up. It's very hard, of course, the studios don't really want to give, give over stuff. They were hired, in my contract it specifically says anything that you create for this film is the property of the studio. And so it's pretty clear cut that uh, I have no um, sort of intellectual uh, ownership of, of any of that stuff. So, but it is being slowly chipped away at. Um, I always like to try and come at it for a different way. I'm like, what about if there's a costume that's produced that's like, you know, in consultation with the costume designer, it's a special edition costume, you know, are there different ways around it? And then, you know, I would get involved in that and maybe get some remuneration from that. Um, but at the moment, it's, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. 
I just want a very quick comment. A very famous production designer from the UK, Mr. Ken Adam, who designed many of the best Bond films. And you watch those films and think, wow. Um, eventually, he was able to get a, uh, some remuneration because they found, he found out through his agent, they did a lot of um, investigation. A lot of the toys and all those things, the Bond cars, they were making millions of dollars. So good luck to you. <laughs> it's good to know there's a precedent. Um, thank you so much for my comments. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, my question is actually about the Flash's costume. I read something before, was it a few weeks before or so. It says it's actually made of material. NASA's making astronauts' uniforms so it resists to high temperature and high currents or something. So, do you mind tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. Flash, one of my favorite all-time characters, and played in Justice League by the amazing Ezra Miller. He's going to be huge. He already is, I guess, but he's such a fascinating guy. Um, and he's perfect for the Flash because he, with his costume, I really wanted to get this sort of sense the two worlds colliding of like low-tech and high-tech. Like he's a guy that doesn't have any money or resources, but he is very fast, so maybe he could steal into places, steal a 3D printer maybe, and like start, uh, he's very good on the computer, maybe he could draw some elements in 3D and print them out. He's super um, like tech savvy. And so I had fun like just thinking, how would he really create his, his suit? You know, he'd obviously go online and explore heat resistant fabrics that are being developed, um, speed resistance, he'd look at aeronautical design, what moves through, what shapes move through space very quickly. <laughs> Um, so, we have, that was another super complicated costume um, that, uh, that I created. It had something like 138 different parts to it. We drew it all on the computer, it was sort of mounted. We created these textures that looked like these sort of NASA textures. Um, but of course it had to stretch, it had to be stunt worthy, we had to make 15 of them. You know, it was just all of these sort of criteria that we had to um, uh, meet. Uh, and so we created textures, we created hard and soft parts, and we sort of put it all together. But what we wanted to say also is that he's just, this is the beginning of the Flash story. We're just working, he's working out who he is. He's had some epic fails probably on the, on the costume. Some things have grazed, some things have popped off. He's had to sort of repaint things with like primer and stuff. So the sense of a sort of prototype costume, some things that work, some that don't, that was something that really appealed to me. Staying with the Justice League, um, could you talk a little bit about the Batman costume? Because without wishing to sound alien retentive but failing completely, um, it, it feels like it's gone back to the Frank Miller graphic novels, and, and it's, it's, it's a world away. Like, as much as I love Lindy's work, it, it feels like it's going more back towards a particular kind of basic. That was definitely the brief when I when I um, started to work on a new bat, bat suit. Was like okay, Lindy and her amazing team have pushed it so far in one direction, it's phenomenal, what do you do now? And the answer was to go super analog, to do the opposite. We really wanted to say that the bat suit is, it's about showcasing the amazing physicality of, of Bruce Wayne. He is like in great form, he's an incredible fighter. He's all brawn, he's like a mountain of muscle. Uh, we, we love the Frank Miller images, and we love the fact that we wanted to do a suit that is kind of like those images that you see in cartoons brought to life. You know when you see Batman as a 
cartoon, as a, in a graphic novel, and he's just like a, like a super buff, defined musculature, painted gray with a black cape. You kind of wanted to do that. Now, of course, as a film, you have to think about texture and depth and how things are going to light. It couldn't really just be that simple. So what looks like probably a pretty simple costume, of course, is there's all sorts of things going on there, and it's, it's actually quite complicated. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more questions. Some... Hi, um, you spoke earlier about with working with David Russell, how you always had like a rack of clothes on set to like change with the actors and everything. But I imagine with something like Wonder Woman, the costume is always like set in stone kind of thing. So I was just wondering how your role might change on actual set with production and things. Yeah, that's another great point. These great questions, thank you. Um, you're right, completely opposite working on a, you know, $30 million um, film where you have small amount of resources, but you have to have, because it's such an organic process, you do have to have this rail of options. I think, I think on American Hustle, there was a separate costume trail just for Amy and Jennifer's costumes, because it was such a closet um, that was needed. Um, and that, of course, takes resources and things, I and mean, you don't have a lot, it's extremely challenging. But something like these big superhero films, there's, you do a million illustrations of what the design uh, is going to be, and it's passed through many people, it goes to the studio for approvals, it goes to the director. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated process that takes months. Um, and finally, you're, they land on, yes, this is the image that we want to build. Four months later, you actually have a costume. So, you know, it's such a different um, process. It's extremely detailed, particular. You, you show things to the studio many times in that four months of research and development to make sure you're going in the right direction. There's no surprises. These things are very expensive, so you don't want to you know, go off in a on a tangent when it's not what they want. Uh, so, yeah, it's just using your brain in a different way, and that's why, again, I love, I'm so excited about um, what I've been able to achieve in my career, because every film is so different. I learn new things, I use my brain in a different way, and uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm in a constant state of, uh, of learning. Hi, Michael. Um, I have a question regarding working with actors. Um, I know that Ben Affleck, he asked for a zipper so he can have a wee. Um, I've also seen Jason Momoa in his green jumper that he has in the film, and I think he was wearing it for press. So did he borrow it or steal it? Um, how do you deal with that kind of stuff on a daily basis? Um, working with Jason Momoa is unlike working with any other actor I've worked with before. He's amazing. He's such a force of nature. He just like, he fills a room and then some. He's such a big personality. He had all sorts of amazing ideas about the civilian wear for his character, um, Arthur Curry. Um, and he has such a great sense of personal style. I mean, the man, he should like bring out his own fashion label because he, he sources, he goes to all of the like, um, you know, the weird vintage stores out in the middle of nowhere and gets these like genuine army issue sweaters from 50 years ago and uh, he has these, he has a guy in LA that actually, when he buys clothes, he gives them to this guy and he like buries them in his garden and like uh, 
paints them and like distresses them so they look super cool. Uh, and so working with him was tremendously exciting because you know he brings a lot to the table, I bring a lot to the table, and together we we create this character. He did end up using a few things from his own closet as Arthur Curry. Um, not only things that he had already, things that he sort of like came across while we were in our fitting process. Um, then, of course, we need seven of them because it's a superhero film and there's stunts and he gets wet and there's, you know, wire work and all of that's underground tank work and all that sort of thing. So he finds this incredible one-off, you know, vintage blah blah. I have to then take it to my team and say, we need to reproduce this exactly seven times. And so that's a whole um, other process. Um, but working with Jason is fantastic. Zippers are very important. Um, you know, comfort of actors is the most important thing um, that a, a costume designer can do. Um, if an actor is uncomfortable, you can tell straight away. Um, and so yes, um, practicalities uh, like zippers figure a lot in my life. I think we've got, yep. Hello, thank you very much for today. Um, I was wondering how much the studio is involved in creative decisions um shape and um just the feminine look of everything and how much is that kind of cutting in the design idea or the message um it, it really the answer is it really varies from experience to experience i've been i've been so lucky when i think about it there's been quite Quite, only tiny little bits of, of feedback and and design development from from studios. Um, often I think a studio wants to be surprised. They want to see something they haven't seen before, or something they hadn't expected, because they feel uh, you know audiences also want the same thing. And so, genuinely, I've and generally I've been very lucky with the things that I've designed. The approval process hasn't been too painful. I think that also says a lot about the directors that go in um, and support my ideas and, and fight for them and, um, and uh, help the studio along with that. I think one thing that comes to mind, baby, is uh, when we were developing uh, Look for 300, there was a lot of studio discussion about leather speedos. <laughs> uh, and so shapes, proportions, too big, too small, Oh my gosh, it was it was a lot. Um, I remember we sent them lots of photos of like, but this is what like wrestlers wear. This you know, America doesn't have a problem with looking at this. This is fine. This is not confronting. Um, and so there was a lot. I think particular things that the studio is nervous about isolating um, potential members of the audiences and losing box office. That's that's always what they're on the lookout for. Um, another example. Uh, I can't talk about it too much, but um, the project I'm working on now, Jasmine, Princess Jasmine, famously in the cartoon, is wearing kind of very little. Uh, she's wearing a, a you know a bra top with a little chiffon um, uh, sleeves, and so we've had to think a lot about what what the real life version when you see that on a real actor, in st you know again with stunts and wind, and uh, thinking about the audience. There was a lot of discussion, I think, with the, with the studio about that costume, also knowing that that would be the poster costume, that would be the doll, that would be the iconic look for the character. There was quite a lot of studio interest in that costume. Thank you very much.
Um, I think we've come to an end of our time here. Um, if you haven't seen um, Justice League, it, it's, it's quite extraordinary to see the, the huge spectrum of work of, of Michael's that's on display in it. So I, I do strongly recommend for anyone interested in, in costume de design to, to go and see it. Um, thank you very much to BFI Network and also to BAFTA for organizing this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Michael Wilkinson.